Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our December 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a mental disorder that can develop after exposure to an extremely terrifying event such as military combat. The media is filled with stories of war veterans suffering from PTSD, but before this study, data were lacking on how common PTSD is among U.S. veterans. The authors of this article analyzed data from the National Health and Resilience in Veterans Study. This study assessed trauma exposure, PTSD, and other psychiatric problems in a contemporary, nationally representative sample of over 3,000 U.S. veterans. The study received funding from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the National Institute of Mental Health, the Department of Defense, and the Defense Advanced Research Programs Agencies. The authors found that 8% of veterans had probable PTSD in their lifetime, a rate slightly higher than the general U.S. adult population. Rates were also higher among female and younger veterans. Although people often assume that PTSD is related to military experiences, veterans frequently reported PTSD resulting from other events, such as a sudden death of a loved one and physical or sexual assault during childhood. Veterans with PTSD were at much greater risk for other psychiatric disorders such as depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug problems, and suicidal behaviors. However, psychosocial factors such as resilience, community integration, and having supportive relationships were negatively related to PTSD. The authors conclude that PTSD is a prevalent disorder among both combat and non-combat veterans, particularly among female and younger veterans, and is associated with co-occurring psychiatric problems. They further suggest that interventions geared toward bolstering protective psychosocial factors may mitigate the risk for developing PTSD. If patients with schizophrenia are to lead more productive lives, their complex, real-world needs must be better understood. Clinical trials examining these needs must inform an ever-widening group of stakeholders, including patients, clinicians, regulatory authorities, and health care payers. Trials conducted under highly controlled conditions that focus on drug efficacy and safety, sometimes called explanatory trials, often leave many questions related to clinical practice unanswered. To address such questions, trials with real-world designs, often called pragmatic studies, are necessary to build upon the foundational information established in explanatory trials. Pragmatic studies have limited exclusionary criteria, provide latitude in comparator treatment options, and assess naturalistic outcomes. Once monthly injectable antipsychotics with their potential for 
more enduring treatment exposure, may provide benefits over oral antipsychotics. However, controlled studies comparing long-acting versus oral antipsychotic medications have yielded inconsistent results. Differential effectiveness between long-acting and oral formulations may be best demonstrated through more pragmatic trial designs. The authors of this article, supported with funding from Janssen Scientific Affairs, conducted the paliperidone palmitate research in demonstrating effectiveness study, referred to as the PRIDE study. The PRIDE study compared the long-acting injectable antipsychotic paliperidone palmitate with oral antipsychotic medications for treatment of schizophrenia in real-world settings. It included pragmatic features for patient selection, treatment choices, and outcomes. The study also combined explanatory and pragmatic design elements. The author's work provides a description of the trial design of PRIDE and the rationale behind selection of patients for inclusion, outcome measures, and other design features. The authors conclude that knowledge gleaned from this study should support better treatment decisions and lead to additional clinical trials with real-world aspects. The goal of this next study, which was supported by the U.S. National Institutes of Health, was to describe the rates of elevated inflammation, obesity, and metabolic syndrome among individuals with depression. The analysis was conducted on study participants from the 2009 to 2010 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey who had significant depressive symptoms as measured by the Patient Health Questionnaire. The authors found that a significant portion of participants with depression had elevated inflammation. Elevated inflammation was significantly correlated with body weight, waist circumference, body mass index, insulin, two-hour glucose tolerance, and self-reported general health. Over 40% of the sample met criteria for metabolic syndrome. Those individuals with elevated inflammation were more likely to meet criteria for metabolic syndrome. These results highlight the significant inflammatory and metabolic burden of individuals with depression. Such factors very likely contribute to the elevated risk of medical comorbidities in depression. Smoking is associated with medical and psychiatric comorbidities, and many smokers take psychiatric medications both before and during attempts to quit. However, little is known about the interaction between rates of smoking cessation and psychiatric medication treatment. To address this issue, the authors of this article conducted a chart review of smoking cessation treatment outcomes of 144 veterans with medical and psychiatric comorbidities. They looked for what effect antidepressant, antipsychotic, or mood stabilizer medication treatment might have on the rate of smoking cessation. They found no difference between veterans who were able to quit smoking and those unable to do so in terms of baseline depressive symptoms, clinical attendance, history of psychiatric illness, or histories of major medical illnesses 
aside from diabetes. The authors found that veterans taking antidepressants were less likely to quit smoking than veterans not taking antidepressants. However, there were no differences between groups for veterans either taking or not taking antipsychotics or mood stabilizers. Furthermore, the association of antidepressant use with a reduced rate of quitting smoking was seen primarily in those veterans with a prior history of substance use disorders. These preliminary findings need replication in larger studies, but they do indicate that there may be a clinically important interaction between antidepressant medications, smoking cessation, and a history of substance use disorders. Transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, has been shown to be an effective and safe acute treatment for patients who don't benefit from antidepressant therapy. However, few studies have looked at the long-term effectiveness of TMS. In a study funded by Neuronetics, Dunner and colleagues investigated one-year outcomes of acute treatment with TMS. 257 patients with major depressive disorder who did not respond to pharmacotherapy received TMS and agreed to follow-ups at three-month intervals. Of the 120 patients who met criteria for response or remission at the end of acute treatment, 62.5% continued to meet response criteria throughout follow-up. Relapse of symptoms was usually successfully treated with either reintroduction of TMS or adjustment of maintenance pharmacotherapy. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the December Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In recent years, researchers and practitioners have increasingly realized that mental health services should be adapted and focused on patients with severe mental illness, particularly schizophrenia spectrum disorders and bipolar disorder. In a previous study known as Access One, the authors of this article implemented and evaluated an integrated care treatment model known as the ACCESS model that included assertive community treatment for patients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders. The ACCESS model compared quite favorably to standard care. Given the positive results of that study, the ACCESS model was implemented in a second study, the ACCESS-2, which extended treatment to patients with bipolar I disorder and psychotic features. In this article, the authors report the two-year results of the ACCESS-2 study. Patients with a schizophrenia spectrum or bipolar disorder were studied under real-life conditions. The ACCESS model was successfully implemented in routine care and proved to be successful regarding low rates of service disengagement, a significant decrease in involuntary admissions, and significant improvements in psychopathology, functioning, and quality of life. The authors assert that successful translation from research to clinical practice may be related to two important factors beyond the principles of assertive community treatment. First, the embedding of assertive community treatment in an integrated care program, allowing need-adapted treatments. 
and second, the expertise of the assertive community treatment team in treating psychoses, including their commitment to psychotherapy and family involvement. The authors conclude that the specific effect of psychotherapy and family involvement on service engagement needs further study. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act brings with it unprecedented opportunities to expand coverage for mental health and substance use disorders in the United States. There are two major provisions of the Affordable Care Act, both of which include coverage for mental health and substance use disorders. The first provision is the expansion of Medicaid to all adults under the age of 65 who have incomes at or below 138% of the federal poverty level. However, the Medicaid expansion is currently a state option, and some states have decided not to expand Medicaid. The second provision is the creation of health insurance exchanges, which are health insurance marketplaces that should offer affordable health insurance and federal subsidies. In work supported by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, researchers used a nationally representative sample of adults in the United States to examine the clinical characteristics and health service use of those who are likely eligible for these two provisions. They found that of the 12% of the U.S. population that is currently uninsured, nearly a third are likely eligible for the Medicaid expansion if all states were to implement it. And of those uninsured, nearly half had a mood, anxiety, or substance use disorder, and nearly a quarter had a personality disorder. Yet those individuals reported using less mental health services compared to those already on Medicaid. These findings point to the importance for the uninsured individuals to obtain insurance coverage for their various mental health problems, either through the Medicaid expansion or health insurance exchanges. These findings also underscore the importance of careful planning to provide comprehensive services. Many bipolar disorder patients experience problems with concentrating, planning, and remembering information. These cognitive deficits persist long-term and contribute to patients' problems in their daily lives and at work. However, no treatments are currently available that can reverse these cognitive difficulties. Erythropoietin, best known for blood doping in competitive sports, has beneficial effects on the brain, where it stimulates birth of new cells and their connections. These regenerative actions have encouraged studies of erythropoietin in patients with schizophrenia or multiple sclerosis. These studies have demonstrated that erythropoietin can improve cognitive function in these patients. The authors of this article investigated the effects of erythropoietin on cognitive difficulties in patients with bipolar disorder. The study randomly allocated 44 patients to receive eight weekly doses of erythropoietin, or saline, intravenously. Participants were given a set of cognitive tests measuring memory, attention, and planning ability, 
before and after treatment completion and at a six-week follow-up. The study received funding support from the Danish Ministry of Science, Innovation, and Higher Education, Novo Nordisk Foundation, Beckett Foundation, and a private non-profit institution in Denmark. The study results showed that erythropoietin had no effect on memory, the primary endpoint. However, the agent did improve attention, planning ability, and speed of complex cognitive processing. Remarkably, these effects were maintained at the six-week follow-up. The authors conclude that this first investigation offers hope that new drugs directly targeting the brain's regenerative capacities can help attenuate cognitive deficits in patients with psychiatric illness. Major depressive disorder is a leading cause of functional disability worldwide, especially among young and middle-aged adults. Previous research has shown that improvement in depressive symptoms and even symptom remission do not always translate to normalization of life functioning. These findings have led to an interest in determining other contributors to functional impairment in people with depression. Cognitive dysfunction is an increasingly recognized problem in depression and most likely contributes to functional impairment. In this article, the authors systematically review existing studies on neurocognitive deficits and their impact on life-functioning outcomes in major depressive disorder. The authors systematically searched over 400 candidate articles, from which 10 studies were examined for both neuropsychological and functional outcomes, including social and work functioning. Because the studies differed substantially in measures and methodology, the authors performed a narrative descriptive review. Overall, depressed samples had neuropsychological deficits in several cognitive domains that were associated with various psychosocial outcomes, suggesting that neurocognitive deficits are broadly associated with functional impairment in depression. However, these findings were limited by the number and quality of studies, many of which had cross-sectional study designs with small sample sizes. The authors conclude that further research is needed to clarify the relationships between neurocognitive and psychosocial functioning in depression. Further studies should include larger and more homogeneous samples, prospective designs with multivariate analyses, and comprehensive assessments of psychosocial functioning that are validated in depressed populations. As publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, I'm pleased to bring you a special offering this month. In our Academic Highlights section, six clinicians provide an overview of vortioxetine, a new antidepressant approved for the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults. These experts deliver a broad perspective of the agent, encompassing preclinical and clinical pharmacology and the management of depression in both psychiatry and primary care. It is our hope that this early look at vortioxetine will assist you in keeping current in the field. Untreated depression is associated with many adverse gestational outcomes. 
It is therefore important to know about the safety of different antidepressant drugs during pregnancy and lactation so that informed decisions can be made regarding treatment. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade summarizes the published literature with regard to the safety of duloxetine during pregnancy and lactation. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the December issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.